Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that essentially serves as a sexual health communications platform, serving people who are learning to disclose their STI status and to navigate any sort of stigma, as well as educating people who are the loved ones or potential partners of people who are living with STIs. And um, yeah, this is a place where we are just pointing people in the directions of the lived experiences of people who have tested positive for an SCI in a way that allows for them to best minimize their potential exposure um, and the risks. And I use air quotes when I say risks of <laughs> um, contracting an SCI as best they can, just using these experiences and lessons from folks who have direct experience with it. Um, part of what Something Positive for Positive People does is work in the public health sector. We work with public health professionals, um, healthcare organizations, clinics, clinicians, um, anyone who may interact with someone who has an SCI, just in order to learn what some of their challenges are, how we can best serve them. Uh, if you've been following for a while, then you know that one of the things that we advocate for is this anti-stigmatizing, identity-affirming, and sex-positive or pleasure-positive healthcare. And the way that we're going about doing that is essentially guiding healthcare providers and educating them uh, through real experience with folks that can offer feedback to how they have like a simulated encounter with taking a sexual history with someone. Uh, this is important work to me, partly because most of the audience, most of the people that I've spoken to has had a negative experience with their healthcare provider. And this is one of the initial touch points of stigma. And while I don't believe that, you know, we're just going to end stigma, I think that what we can do is best equip ourselves at the primary source of it, which is in the healthcare space where someone may receive their diagnosis or get tested or get treatment. Um, if we're able to get accurate, consistent information from these spaces during our frequent testing or when we're confronted with a positive status, then that's going to help us with navigating this in the future as well. So that Hopefully that detailed background uh, sets you up to understand and be able to receive the content of this podcast episode because I'm here with someone who worked in public health, STI <laughs> prevention specifically, uh, Jessica, and uh, I was as I was talking and before we started, I was trying to think of how we connected or how we met. And I'm wondering if uh, it had anything to do with STD Engage, the annual sexual health conference of, um, no, it was before that. Cause I remember, it was before that. yeah. Wow. This is crazy. Was, do do you remember how we Facebook connected? Group? Was it like a herpes positive Facebook group? A herpes positive Facebook group. I, I Cause you actually became my best friend. Laura is how we connected. And she did a podcast with you. Oh. You guys connected through that. And then our friendship just flourished. That was such, yeah. Laura gave me a really good episode. I think I remember the title being something along the lines of like, um, like connection extends beyond the body. Uh, it was that podcast episode, I believe. Because, yeah, I remember she yeah. lives in the same state as you. Um, and I remember when I was at STD Engage and you were telling me to... Uh, your boss was there. I remember you telling me that. Yes. And that I should meet your yes. boss. Okay. The world is forever small. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, I am going to offer you space to tell the story of what happened because um, I am not I'm not up to speed with what happened. And I know that over the past, because we, we scheduled this maybe a handful of days ago. And I don't want to try and I don't even want to butcher the story. I can give like brief bullet points, but we like have to unpack those bullet points. Like I remember the headlines and some sentences from what you've shared with me, but I, I want for you to just share start to finish and then we'll go ahead into it. But um, again, this is just, um, I didn't say this, so I don't know why I said again, but we're going to speak to something that recently happened and it, it gives us a lens of perspective 
uh, into the STD prevention, STI prevention, and public health space when it comes to uh, STIs. And we can see like that this is this is a business. It's political. And that's why we're yeah. here today is for you to be able to share that story. So I am going to now shut up until you give me pauses <laughs> to ask you questions. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate you giving me this space uh, to basically storytell uh, or bring awareness. Let me backtrack a little bit and introduce myself a bit more. Uh, so my name's Jessica Warner. I was working for the Ohio Department of Health. Um, sure, certain feelings and thoughts came to mind the second I said Ohio for some of your listeners. Um, so I was hired by the Ohio Department of Health about three years ago to be our first, um, basically a sexual health and wellness trainer. Pretty much everything you said at the start was the idea of what we wanted that program to look at, look like. So it would be for care providers, it would be trainings, technical assistance, resources, everything that providers, and that's a very vague loose term, uh, broad, it could be organizations, local health departments, physicians, whoever really needed help with maybe staging syphilis, or maybe um, gonorrhea and chlamydia treatment. Maybe they need to know what the landscape looks like in their county of what STIs look like. Uh, the sky's really the limit of what that could have looked like, and I was hired to create that. Uh, I followed a lot of like what you talked about with STD Engage, what you did, and honestly, a lot of your content, Courtney, helped shape what I would have liked the content to be. You had a thing about STI minimization. I think, what was it with Michigan? Is that where you presented that? Yeah, um, it was with the State of Michigan HIV and STI Conference 2021. And it was just speaking to like an evolved form of STD prevention based on the CDC standards, something that's more inclusive to the lived experiences of people who have tested positive. So this idea of STI minimization, which included um, mental health resources, sexual health communication, um, as well as, wow, what was the third component? I have a graphic that STI minimization is at the core, and it's like three of the circles that overlap, and, and there's a description. But ultimately, that's what it is, like seeing sexual health as more mental health and then combining these yes. two and creating an intervention resource that tells us, you know, we're not going to prevent, like the things that we've been told prevent STDs, actually pre uh more so minimize the risks so that people are aware that they still can get uh an sei from wearing a condom with a sexual partner who might be positive because of improper condom use and to know that you can not use a condom with someone and not get an sci but we have to get into right. communication so like emphasizing Absolutely. aspects that are just not touched upon uh, that really blew my mind when you did that. It really made me want to change a lot of what we were doing in STI prevention, at least with what I had the power to change. I haven't necessarily agreed with a lot of STI prevention tactics in public health with the CDC. Um, I have a big beef with partner reduction as a risk, you know, quote unquote, risk minimization. It really bothers me. It really pushes for monogamy. And I could just go on and on about how that's problematic in itself because you know, serial monogamy is a huge risk factor for an STI. Um, so a lot of what you, your content, a lot of what uh, other sex educators, a lot of the research and stuff, it's really been speaking to me and how I wanted to build the platform, an actual evidence-based research-driven education program. Um, it was to be my baby and I was pretty proud of it. I have almost a decade now in public health doing sexual health and wellness. Um, I've always had an interest in what's considered sexually taboo or not even sexually, just what's considered taboo in healthcare. I worked in harm reduction, opening syringe service programs. Um, so it's not my first rodeo of navigating these worlds. Uh, fast forward. So I was hired to start that. A pandemic happened. That definitely influenced a lot of things. Um, but even with that aside, it was still evidently clear that there was constant political and bureaucratic roadblocks every step of the way to try to get this program going. Uh, I'm honestly unsure why 
there must have been a level of optimism and hope that we had in 2019 that this could have happened. Um, I think it, it probably has died. This idea has died and we'll get there. So in May, um, 2022. The only thing that I managed, yeah, sorry, May of 2022, uh, I released a newsletter. The only thing I've managed to get started was a newsletter, a few trainings for HIV case managers. I was creating a training that I'm so proud of that never got to go out on masturbation as a risk minimization technique for public health. Uh, so there was a lot in encompassing in that, including, you know, for folks who were newly positive, trying to navigate that discomfort or fear of being sexual again, you know, utilizing masturbation to get back into your body, into pleasure, uh, knowing that your sex life's not over. I mean, there are so many facets to it. And May is National Masturbation Month. Do you know what the history is for National Masturbation Month? I think we talked about this. Do you remember what it was? Not the history, no. Okay. Uh, so I think it was 92. I didn't write this down. So we had Attorney General Jocelyn Elders, who was the Attorney General of the United States, who advocated for sexual health education and for masturbation to be taught. Uh, she was incredible. Question? She really, yeah. So when we say teaching masturbation, mm -hmm. just to like elaborate a little more, because when I hear we want to teach masturbation, I had like a little bit of a response to that. Like, do, are you saying like incorporate speaking to masturbation in sex education or are we talking about teaching youth how to masturbate? Just to clarify. In my dream world, it would be both. Uh, I think that we should definitely teach youth how to masturbate. We should definitely be assisting them with accessing tools to feel pleasure, you know, in the appropriate kind of way. Um, I think it was even Oprah a long time ago, in the early 90s, advocated for buying your your teenage daughter a sex toy, her first sex toy. Um so Jocelyn Oders was really big into that. She was a black woman leading, always leading the way, black women are, and really advocating for uh, black youth, especially for sexual health education. So of course she got fired, right? <laughs> so Bill Clinton fired her. So National Masturbation Month was an awareness event. So just to keep this flow linear of uh, why well, I was ironically fired for almost the same thing. Um, I'm definitely not Dr. Jocelyn Elders. So I released a newsletter that contained content about National Masturbation Month. Um, this was the eighth one. And then it had a lot of other content. You know, May was a big month for Awareness Month. We had Panromantic Awareness Month, uh, Honoring LGBTQ Elders Awareness Month. Uh, there was a lot there. And then I included some other materials. There were a variety of grants that I included including an absence only grant. And then there was a grant from the University of Chicago to expand Mifepristone, the abortion pill in healthcare clinics. This came from a healthcare setting, was designed for healthcare clinics. That is who my audience is. I also included webinars on um, harm reduction sex workers and it was harm reduction sex workers and something else that was included in there. So within an hour after I sent this newsletter out, I got a call. I had to remove anything about abortion from my superiors. So I did, did it as a correction. Uh, by the end of the day, my superiors had me in a meeting. They were like, you know, I think HR is just upset because we had this newsletter. Uh, we didn't, they didn't know about it. Our communications department, it was kind of just something that was not public. It was only for sub recipient people. Our communication standards are very vague and they're very challenging to get anything through. Um, so they were like, maybe they're just upset because of that. It rapidly spiraled to an HR investigation. Within a few days uh, from the newsletter's release, our HR was investigating me for the contents of the newsletter and wanted to see all of them. So they spoke with me and my union members or my union rep and asked me questions about specifically some content and deemed it too controversial to be talking about. 
some of that content was honoring LGBTQ elders, National Masturbation Month, huge focus on the masturbation piece. They're really upset about that one. Uh, Panromantic Awareness Month, uh, Black Reproductive Cancers. They asked why that was in there and wanted to know, shouldn't the cancer division of the health department be handling that? And I said, well, it's reproductive cancers and HPV is an STI. The whole conversation kind of made me question uh, the knowledge of HR and think, wow, you guys really need me because you have no idea about any of this stuff. And one of the other things that they asked about was National Condom Month. They deemed that very controversial and highlighted that as a cause for concern. Um, <laughs> so let's see what's relevant with another week after that investigation. Um, actually within a few days, I should say, they told me to cancel all of my trainings. My entire program was shut down. I was not allowed to do the national masturbation month training with any of our subrecipients we had planned. Um, everything that I had was canceled. All of our evaluation tools were told to be deleted. Everything that I was doing was told to stop. So I was being paid to just sit there and do nothing at this point while I was under investigation. They went through my emails and looking for something to be upset about more, I assume, and found that we got a donation of vibrators from Trojan condoms. Uh, it was linked to us from uh, the national STD directors, they were getting into clinics. So I was under the assumption and so was my supervisors that we could take these and then distribute them out to healthcare, local health departments with this training and they could use them as they pleased. It's home rural state here. They can do whatever they want. Here's just another free option we're connecting you with, uh, for you to give out to your communities when they come in for STI clinics, however you so please. So there was another investigation for that. Um, I was not allowed to speak to my supervisors at all. This lagged out for about a month total. Um, I learned that my boss's boss was being forced to resign. And then I had heard rumors my boss was looking at being fired. I have a union, they don't. So I assumed that I I don't know what would happen to me. My union was pretty confident. This is like ridiculous. There's no policies that violated. I literally just provided public health resources from public health providers that's evidence-based in a newsletter to public health recipients. Um, so on June 17th, they made me come in at nine in the morning and handed me my termination paperwork. They only thing that they listed on there was that I was being terminated for any behavior or misconduct that would embarrass the agency. I don't entirely know what that means. Um, they quoted our mission statement a lot, and so did I, and it has to do with being evidence-based. It has to do with data-driven. It has to do with uh, combating health disparities, and I do all that. I was doing all that with all of my stuff. I provided them a variety of resources. It fell on deaf ears um, because everything that I was doing was deemed too controversial. Um, I'll take a pause here. What kind of questions do you have? <laughs> oh, that was so clinical of you. I, when you said that, I immediately thought about being at work because it's like what the healthcare providers uh, say <laughs> like to patients after disclosing whatever. Like, hey, here's what I think it is. Uh, this is what it is. What questions do you have for me? It's like, no, <laughs> you're not finna, you ain't finna get me with that. Uh, I, I think it's more of an observation. Social media, I, I'm very much active on Instagram. And like, that's the last thing standing because I don't get engagement on Twitter. I don't get engagement on Facebook. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm noticing on Instagram, even when I try and share information that is relevant to sex education, if it's any sort of, I, I generally stay away from statistics, but even if I'm sharing anything that's useful from someone else, I notice that the visibility of it is significantly lower than if I just post a picture of myself with my shirt off. Like it's completely mm -hmm. different. Like the engagement is less than up, but up to 25% less, like max. Um, and I'm seeing that this censorship is 
carrying itself out in a variety of different ways. Because like on Facebook, people just don't see my posts. I thought for a while people just weren't engaging with the content because the general public like doesn't probably want to talk about sexual health. And then, you know, to see it on Instagram where I have so many people who follow me, who support and know what it is that I represent, what I talk about. They're like, oh, I didn't even know that you were still posting. I didn't know, like, I haven't been seeing your uh, your content lately. And I'm like, what? Like, this censorship is really getting out of hand. And I think that it has to do with society, the media's idea of sex as intercourse, sexuality being seen as sex, the word pleasure being so connected to sex as well. So I'm learning that part of what is uh, going to have to happen is that we have to shift the language and communication. Because like now people are like altering the writing and the way that they say sex to like segs, like eggs Mm -hmm. with an S in the front. Masturbation has... Uh, various ways of being written and anything that falls under these categories like while yeah it has to do with sex but I think that what the media and the powers that be are looking at is that it's intercourse based and everything is coming from a place of being intercourse penis in a vagina heterosexual people doing these things and no one's and your job like proving that in HR for HR not to understand how cancers uh for black women uh is linked to reproductive health reproductive justice to not understand masturbation as an sti minimization tactic to not see just how influential your work is in driving the purpose the mission of the organization that is supposed to be advocating for std prevention like they're they're not seeing that and i'm really wondering what could your intention be as an organization to not support this kind of messaging? Are you just there to get the grants and funding to pay your bills and then just like fly under the radar? Is there a hidden agenda? Are we better off without this kind of an organization existing? Because it seemed as if they were wanting to just silence the potentially revolutionary work that you were doing. Oh, gosh, I have so many thoughts from everything you just said. Uh, You know, a a big thought that came to mind while you were saying all that, too, is, like, I think for a while we've known that our our government, our healthcare, our education doesn't want us to have sex, right? We don't want to talk about it. Uh, It's abstinence only. Ohio is definitely an abstinence only state. So they don't want to have sex with other people. But it's like you can't even have sex with yourself. They have a problem with masturbation. So they don't want you to do anything um, because because pleasure and owning your body and owning pleasure is like revolutionary and they don't want that to happen. I'm I'm vaguely blanketing of who they would be, the man, whatever. So what I personally, and this is only me and my experience with public health have noticed is taking grant funding and not wanting any program to succeed. And I think we can also say that we noticed a lot of that with the way the COVID response was. There was a lot of grant money that went down. There was a lot of federal dollars that went down. Things were poorly, poorly executed. Uh, But people love to collect that grant money. And as long as they're checking off the bare minimum boxes, I mean, they don't actually have to do everything that you you would think the dollars are designed to do. Every program that I have worked in my time, I did feel like my higher-ups wanted it to fail. I swear I thought you were about to continue. (laughs) Um, I I feel like that was my heavy heavy silence there. Um, That's what public health feels like. It doesn't feel like we actually want to do better for people, (sighs) at least in these realms that I have worked I have a I have a real shitty thought and you know while we're here I guess I can explore this with you but it seems like a lot of the obvious things to do when we look at rates of SCIs going up every year and the alarming rates and the articles that come out that say SCIs are on the rise and 
we need more funding mm-hmm. to create interventions. And like, here I am with an obvious intervention that is literally taking the experiences of people and hearing consistently over and over and over again that we live in a very, I don't want to say sex negative society, but it's a sex avoidance society. And this has come from mm-hmm. several conversations with Dr. Evelyn Dacker, um, and who's on my board of directors. And what that means is that we want for our society to avoid talking about sex. And what I see in these annual interventions is that there is no emphasis on communication about sex or even talking about what sex is, what it looks like, uh, the importance of getting tested because like why, and I I hate to do this uh, to women and make this one more thing, but people who have sex with cisgendered men who typically don't get tested, they're responsible for being like, no, we're not having sex until you get tested. Because what I find in my experience is that the people who have sex with cisgendered heterosexual men are typically the ones who are on top of their sexual health. And many men use that as a reference point for what their sexual health status is until otherwise, right? So I got tested when my baby mama got tested three years ago when she was pregnant. That's what they say. That's right? it. That's it. It's like that. Or my last, I, my ex my didn't tell me. I, I must be fine. Yeah. And in talking to people who have sex with cisgendered heterosexual men, it's like a very similar story. Like I hear, oh yeah, well I got tested and I tested positive for whatever. And I didn't call him and tell him because I'm done with him. So it's like, whoa, like this person has committed oh. and rightfully so, you know, you're leaving that person alone. Uh, So you don't have to tell them anything, but how much responsibility has to be placed on the partner of people who have sex with cisgendered heterosexual men. And here I am collecting stories and experiences again and again on the importance of the kind of sex education that someone like you is wanting to bring into youth and how that directly translates to people not wanting to end their lives after a diagnosis or not perpetuating stigma or not going on to not want to have conversations about their sexual health with partners. There is a direct correlation between those two things. And I'm just a dude with a podcast turned nonprofit who's over here screaming for the CDC's attention to like utilize me to make this problem go away. And it's not like year over year over year, the problem just keeps getting worse. They throw more money at it. And I'm over here like, Hey, you know, I've been, I've been doing this shit for free for five years. Like, talk to me, listen to me and like, let's come up with something so you can stop just throwing money at problems. But I also have to, you know, understand that if this problem gets solved, that's an entire career field that just goes away. I feel like that's what they think, but I don't necessarily feel like it's true because it can just shift we can shift focus. There's always going to be something going on with health. There's always going to be some way that we can revamp and change it. Um, but I think current political climates have shown the government wants us dead. Like they don't care <laughs> that healthcare. It doesn't seem to care not dead. Like you know, dying enough, dying enough for it to be profitable. Yes. Well, I mean, even outside of healthcare, with with the repeal of Roe v. Wade, I mean, with the growing rates of poverty, it's the repeal of the e uh, what was it the EAP uh, for climate change. Like, they don't care if we die, um, so their focus is not on the actual skills that are going to help our and better our lives because our higher ups don't necessarily value those lives. Yeah, and. You know, I guess what does it look like? Not that this is really a relevant conversation because we're so far away from it. But what I envision that it looks like is uh, being able to deliver sex education in a way to youth that we don't even have to talk about sex to them. I take aspects of the BDSM and King community where they talk about negotiations, consent, uh, boundaries, being able to say no, being able to not only ask for what you need, but also to identify 
what it is that you need. Being able to receive rejection, receive a no. Being able to identify abusive and unethical behavior versus healthy behavior, not just in your intimate partnerships, but your friendships. And recognizing abusive family members. And also being able to know that you can seek support and where you can get that support from in the event that there are any uh, violations or any harm has been done. If we can give our youth that framework to work from at youth, once they go into their sex education, whether it be abstinence-based or not, they have a framework to, to, to operate and navigate their sexual uh, exploration as they go into it because it's going to happen organically and if people are so afraid of talking to youth about sex then we can talk to youth about boundaries we can talk to youth about consent yeah. and give them those tools and then I mean the conversation about sex is going to be necessary but it's not going to be a potentially harmful conversation that is one of sex avoidance and we can like take that angle because I think adults are more uncomfortable with talking to youth about sex or thinking about the idea that youth are going to become sexual than the kids are. Like kids are like, ew, gross. I don't even want to have sex. You know, like that's often a response that you get from youth. And it's typically because of the sex avoidance society because adults would be like, yes, we're doing our jobs. But the reality is, you know, that's in front of us when they get together. Like, how do they know how to communicate with each other? How do they know um, that if anything unethical is happening, if something is, how do they know that something is or isn't their choice? Like there are a lot of components to this. And like you said, you know, if the government, you know, once us dead, they don't want us to live. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, that, that suffering there is something that is profitable and it is, essential to maintaining the status quo because what happens when we get liberated uh adults that come out of the school system and they're more aware of what brings them you know not pleasure in the sense of sex exclusively but what brings them pleasure in life because being able to uh experience your pleasure that's a form of justice or uh, a form of revolution uh it's a form of activism yeah. to step away from the status quo and a trajectory of where yeah, uh, the the school systems and the structures in place are like funneling us to go into adulthood. We run the risk of really shifting society in a way that looks unlike anything we've experienced before. And this, you know, while it may be a different thing, I believe that it's a positive thing. And through sex education, we are very capable of achieving that. This is why we're friends. <laughs> Everything that you say, like, that's definitely, I'm all about, I have to save the world. Um, even though that's a big way to wear on my shoulders, that's an aspect that I feel like we can definitely change the world if we can change our attitudes with, with sex, which is just a basic physiological, normal aspect of our lives. Um, I'm trying to recall what you were just saying. That was really good. So I don't typically focus on youth and I, I love my youth educators. I have three children myself, but as far as at, uh, teaching youth, I'm not, I'm, I suck at it. Uh, the older crowd though, that's where I focus on it. And I, I feel like I'm really good at it. They need so much like my age group. I'm in my late thirties. Um, I have gone into, you know, jails and rehab centers. They left when I came in because they wanted this content they needed this content and they needed it in an actual like constructive positive way and not just saying you know if you have sex you're going to get chlamydia and die and, and so they liked having real world tips on how to to navigate things uh well and you had said something about like socially we're sex negative uh, or sex avoidant we avoid talking about sex except for trauma, right? So we talk about sex as trauma all the time. It's all over our media. You know, we put way too much sexual violence in media. It's irrelevant to the plot, whatever the problem is. Um, so the, the way that I feel like we can help change the world is when we, we really heal our relationship with sex, when we heal ourselves too, um, especially if we are 
healthcare workers, if we are sex educators, we really have to fix our own biases and traumas with sex first. Yes. And speaking to the, um, the, the sex avoidance society, how you just mentioned, it's talked about whenever it's in relation to something that's bad, right? Um, is Ohio where the 10 year old girl was raped and is that where that happened? Oh God. Yeah. That I actually worked at that abortion provider. Amazing people, by the way, I was a discharge nurse there for a little bit revolutionary I, i've used that word too much today um just incredible healthcare. it was the way that i felt like all healthcare should be done it was so warm and loving and i love taking care of my patients there it was the women's med center in kettering ohio state in ohio so yeah if anyone's listening has no idea what we're talking about um Maybe you know more about the media than I do, but because I stayed away because I have a nine-year-old, but a 10-year-old girl was, uh, you know, assaulted, pregnant, and had to travel to another state to get care because Ohio has a six-week heartbeat ban, and she was, of course, over that. Uh, So adding to to her trauma, uh, adding to travel, I mean, there was just so much fucked up. So much for when the day that Roe v. Wade was was repealed, uh, my friend texted me, and her friend's daughter was at the same clinic and just went there to get an abortion. The day of, it was several hours before it happened when the heartbeat ban went into effect, and she was almost six weeks. So they had to tell her. At that point, they thought they could take her, and now they couldn't, and had to tell her they couldn't take her anymore. And, what does she do? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, my <clears throat> reason for bringing that up is just how that was something that was pumped out into the media. And, you know, we know media to bring things to attention for people to engage with the media and engage about the media piece that was in, was in place. And yeah, like as such a sex avoidant society, you know, no one wants to acknowledge and address. And I mean, no one is in the powers that be in uh, speaking to, you know, those components of BDSM being taught to youth that don't have anything to do with sex. Like if that young woman was able, that little girl, like let's call it what she was, is was able to identify and say, hey, you know, guardians or uh, whoever adults around me, this is what's happening. But like, we don't even have a sex positive enough education system to be able to empower our youth to come to us and seek support for things that they don't understand that's happening. Right. So not to say that uh, the unfortunate rape, assault and pregnancy could have been prevented, but maybe any early signs of there being a perpetrator. I don't know the whole story or any earlier indication of something going on could have been brought to someone of authority so that this much of it could have it could have been mitigated sooner. And also there was no mention of like the crime, the perpetrator. Okay. This 10 year old was raped and impregnated. What's going to happen to the rapist. And now that we've got this, uh, Roe v. Wade overturn, you know, what does this mean? What, what does this mean for educators? What does it mean for being able to do this work? And more than anything, like it's even more important because we know that don't have sex isn't working. Uh, don't get an STI, wear a condom. That's not working anymore. We need more than that. And mm-hmm. if, yeah, we, we, we absolutely need more than that. And I'll, I'll just kind of pass it back over to you here. I've been seeing memes lately with the Roe v. Wade repeal of like, uh, women now should try to stop having sex with men. And it, well, one, there's the sexual coercion aspect. But that aside, like, I like having sex. I'm not going to stop having sex. So that is just adjusting as a whole. Like, no, fuck that. I'm going to keep fucking. Don't tell me not to fuck. That's not the problem. Um, so, yeah, we have a lot of work ahead 
of us. And um, kind of coming back to our original content of my termination, I mean, I don't think there's going to be another me at and I don't necessarily mean me as in like, you know, my, my ego <laughs> with my program, but like that content. And I think I was being set an example. I think it's going to get worse. The censorship to deem those things as controversial to, to deem honoring LGBTQ elders as controversial. Uh, there was trans affirming healthcare. I forgot that one. Um, that's too controversial. And aside from the fact that there's all those state house bills, they're currently at the Ohio State House to to ban uh, trans trans folks from sports. To oh my God, we just passed that one where you can inspect their genitals to make sure that they're they're the identifying gender, which is highly fucked up to do that to children. Like <laughs> all we do is traumatize our children. Um, it just feels heavily political that this is the direction we're going. So I had to go because I didn't mesh with that. I have a relevant comments to emphasize like points that you've just made, but I feel like um, it is more important to like address like what, what can be done, like what can people do, not just to, you know, raise hell and bring awareness to this being an example of how this public health sector, the government, uh, wants sex education to occur or STD prevention to occur. Cause like you didn't even have a role at your job. You were just kind of sitting there twiddling your thumbs until you started doing things. And then when you started doing things, a lot of money of taxpayer and federal funding dollars to do nothing. So like, what did this organization do outside of what your work was with the newsletters? Like, what did they do? Um, what did the health department do or like, what did, (laughs) well, I was work health departments are pretty siloed in their work. So honestly, we don't always know what the other foot is doing. Wow. Um, I don't entirely know what my own peers do. Uh, don't know especially with working from home because of the pandemic all i know is sometimes i was told you could just watch netflix today someone told you this yes what's the name of this place because there was nothing the, the state health department oh this was <laughs> oh i thought you worked for an agency the, the place that fired yeah, the you. ohio department of health the state government agency health department oh wow that's who i worked for They are definitely, um, it's run by, I would say the governor and the attorney general who are total shitbags. Um, you can't tell me there's not an agenda like there. You cannot convince me that there isn't an agenda because it just seems too obvious that solutions are out there. Like we've got too much money being thrown at the problem for there not to be a solution. I see roles being created and delegated and all these ideas and all of this like talking like there is so much talking happening, but I'm seeing so little actually getting done. And like I'm I'm part of some organizations, I get their newsletters and like I'll read through them from time to time. But like the more I'm reading, the less I'm doing. And the doing comes from being out here, like in involving and engaging with the people who are testing positive, getting the qualitative information and understanding what the patterns and consistencies are so that we can apply this to uh, some quantitative data intake forms or something so that we can see where the general public is in relation to the experiences of people who are testing positive, have tested positive for SCIs and do and have dated people with SCIs so that we can create the intervention that is going to, over the next 10 years, reduce the number of new infections that we see as this intervention is implemented. And it just seems too obvious of a, of a, solution for it to not be implemented I don't even know what to say that I 100% agree and I don't I don't know I'm tired I don't know why 
the the solutions are obviously there and no one's taking hold of them yeah. i think we just get further and further away from progress um and i hate to feel so negative and sound so negative about it but it's been a hard month for us yeah uh, i mean it's been a hard, been a hard, years hard. <laughs> <laughs> decades for us yeah it's been a hard decade it's been a hard century or two, you know, wherever this shithole was founded. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you, the whole entire country was founded with certain values, um, of course we're not going to shift away from them. Mm-mm. Yeah. I, I have, like, some anarchist thoughts and stuff, but that's not a place. This isn't the place for some of those. No, I will, uh, this is where I want to empower everyone to come yeah. to the anarchists. I, I am definitely a uh, uh, an anarchist and have long type. And um, I think that there is a level of complacency that we, unfortunately, have all had to take because we're tired, we're exhausted, we're, we're driven to overwork all the time, we're, we're terrified of losing our jobs and our livelihood. So then we have to just accept the breadcrumbs, the bare minimum breadcrumbs we get to not completely revolt as like starving dogs that we could be. We get just enough pets and kibble to keep us from eating them completely alive. Well, I would like to know what we can do to support you or um, shitting on this organization probably isn't going to get us anything done. But uh, what I mean, I mean, if you want to shit on their front porches, I encourage that too. So I, I appreciate the idea of being supported for me. I am fine. I could walk away from this and I could get a new job and I could do something else, right? My concern is that it's all just gone. All the stuff with sexual health is just going to continue to like be more and more repressed. And that's my concern. So I am, I am trying to fight this every step that I can, every way that I can. I'm trying to find an attorney that can get creative to legally fight this. Um, I guess as far as like what folks can do, like sometimes your local health departments or your board of educations or things like that operate under what the community needs. So the loudest voice is usually the obnoxious, you know, conservative person that like, why are you flying a rainbow flag? Take that down. Um, But pushing for, you know, talking to your kids' schools. I always talk to my kids' teachers about what are they doing? Um, what kind of sexual health education are they providing? I mean, at every grade level, something should be going on with some kind of healthy relationships, something. Um, I've seen really great templates out there for like how you notify your state board of education. Um, talking to your doctor, like what kind of education is your doctor getting? Are they continuing their education for sexual health? Do they even bring it up to you? Because they should. Uh, regardless of what it is, I, for example, got on an acne medication for my dermatologist and he had no idea that it's something that completely kills your libido. And I didn't know why I felt dead from the waist down because of my acne medication. And he had no idea. And I'm sure not often does he get clients come to him that say, Hey, I can't even orgasm when I masturbate. What's wrong? So he had to look it up. Um, so yeah, talking to your doctors, talking to, you know, whatever or an organization that you're, you're involved with. I mean, it is in every facet of our life in some capacity that there should be something relevant to this focus in so many realms that, uh, we should be talking about it more and questioning, you know, are you getting continuing education as a case manager or as a therapist or whatever, um, mm. I guess that's a start. Okay. Um, well, I would like to uh, link to the articles. You said there's one with the Washington Post, um, a local one, right? Like what, I, I'll just ask that you link, you send me the links when I upload this podcast yeah. episode and I'll add those into the show notes so that people can get more uh, background of uh, what we're talking about here and why it's such a big deal. Um, but yeah, I thank you for making the time to be able to 
come and talk about this and share that on this platform as more of a sense of urgency for why we have to do better in our sex education um, and why we have to also do more in terms of holding our healthcare providers accountable and we have to get more comfortable within ourselves of talking about sex. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, yes. Yes. Uh, I appreciate you giving me access to this platform to rant. Um, I appreciate you, your friendship, and everything that you do. Thank you so much, Jessica. All right, that concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, subscribe to this podcast, and you can feel free to make donations if you find this content to be useful or if your public health department is or your public health department, wow, your clinic, your sexual health organization, your hospital, wherever you work as someone uh, who is connected to people who might need to take a sexual history, reach out to me, Courtney at SPFPP.org, or you can visit www.SPFPP.org and hire something positive for positive people to provide these simulated patient experiences. I'm going to be uh, actively like cold calling essentially to get some experience under my belt. This is something that I've been able to get funding for to start out so that I can collect the information and then uh, move forward trying to figure out and decide, okay, what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. Cause I, I have the bigger picture vision. It's just a matter of going through and implementing it. And then understanding what the costs are going to be associated with it. So if you're someone who wants to get with the program haha, pretty early on, now's the time. And if you're someone who just wants to support this, like, yeah, donate at Venmo or Cash App at Courtney Brain. That's just my first and last name. C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y-B-R-A-M as in Mary E. And then on PayPal, it's just paypal.com slash SPFPP. If you want to be a Patreon subscriber, you don't get anything special except for you get to set it and forget it. And um, I try to make announcements there whenever something new is going on uh, on Patreon. And you can do that uh, at patreon.com slash SPFPP as well. And if, you know, monetary support is something that's not in your wheelhouse or you're not able to do that, you can just leave us a rating and review. Um, and yeah, if you need anything, feel free to reach out. I'm most active on Instagram at H on my chest till next time. Stay sex positive.